Because, you know, if you know me in my world, everyone knows about the opera house. Like sometimes people would rather me talk about taxes than <laughs> the opera house. You know, <laughs> They're like, what new tax laws are there today? You know, so that's how bad it is. Oh, man. Welcome to Making It at an Opera, a podcast about what it really means to find your voice and use it. I'm your host, Gwendolyn Kuhlman. In the year 2000, a 24-year-old university grad, just starting her career in accounting, was driving around the Homewood neighborhood in Pittsburgh when she happened by a Queen Anne-style Victorian mansion. The sight of the place made Janae Solomon stop the car and get out. And when she looked at the plaque in front of the house, her life changed. Here at the Cardwell School of Music, this first national black opera company was founded in 1941 by Mary Cardwell Dawson. Noted for its musical genius, it performed for 21 years in Pittsburgh, Washington, New York, and other cities. I will let her tell you the details of all that happened, but suffice it to say, Janae's calling was in the words on that plaque. She went in with a community member, Miriam White, to buy the dilapidated house. And for 20 years, she poured her time, her money, her emotional energy, and her dreams into this house, even as the group she began the dream with started to slowly die off. As she'll tell you, she reached the end of her rope during the pandemic, and thanks to her daughter, She used the pure will and tenacity that had gotten her through 20 years with this house, and she tied a knot and hung on. Later that year, after years of obscurity, despite doing her level best to have this project be noticed, a light finally shone on the National Opera House of Pittsburgh. First, the National Trust for Historic Preservation listed the NOH on its annual list of America's 11 Most Endangered Places. With that, the attention started flooding in, along with the first organizations to step up with substantial grant money for the project, the R.K. Mellon Foundation, soon followed by the African American Cultural Heritage Action Fund. Janae has gone from giving interviews with the Pittsburgh Gazette, sounding the alarm about the leaking roof and contractors stealing materials from the house, to at long last, hosting the celebration to break ground and begin the first round of restoration, which is stabilization. In following the story of the NOH, I became convinced that Janae and the story of the NOH belongs in this season of Making It an Opera, a story about an effort of persistence and tenacity for a project that will contribute to a sort of healing within the opera industry, a place so long dominated by principles of white supremacy that the very name of the first Black opera company and its founder had been all but forgotten. I'm honored to introduce you to Janae Solomon, executive director of the National Opera House in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and the story of her now 22-year journey to rebuild and carry on with Mary Cardwell Dawson's legacy, a preservation in order to, quote, continue a legacy of creative excellence that nurtures talent and widens access to opportunities. Thank you so much, Janae Solomon, for coming on Making It an Opera and sharing the story of the National Opera House. 
it's interesting because I think every other artist I've had on so far, I mean, we're only in my second season, but um, every other artist I've had on has been a performing artist. And I think of you as a different kind, like an organizational mastermind, a person with a vision. And if I may say also pretty stubborn, which I really respect. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my, my mom would wholeheartedly agree with you with that one. She would be like, yes, I agree with you. (laughs) But you know, that kind of persistence is the story of, of you and this house. And it's so exciting to see what is now coming of the National Opera House in Pittsburgh. You are the executive director, you're the community builder, you're um, just the initial person who rode by 22 years ago and got inspired. You just got your university degree as an accountant. Yes. And you were driving through the Homewood neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And as I read, you just stopped in front of this beautiful Queen Anne Victorian yeah (laughs) and what happened I was just imagining you standing there on the sidewalk looking up at this house and I was so curious about like what drew you in I mean this became your destiny in a way yeah that you know to this day I really just don't know I think it's the spirit and energy of the universe that knew that this house would be part of who I was at the time and shape who I was to become. And without this house and that energy, that wouldn't happen. Um, you know, the, the whole world and the energy of the world has a way of knowing what we need. And before we even know, and even when we think we don't, um, it's like, yes, you, you need this to be who you don't know you need to be. So me personally, I don't know, but the energy of the universe knows. And so I've always been a person that follows that. And, and that spirit is always with me. You know, I, I'm a person, you know, my, my sisters have very scheduled lives and I never had a scheduled life. And I remember when I graduated from college, I worked for Arthur Anderson and I said, do I have to come here every single day at nine o'clock? <laughs> <laughs> and my boss was like yeah this is a job and, you know, I was like oh I, I I can't do it so you know that's why it didn't last very long in corporate but I think it's the whole energy of the universe that just kind of parts your destiny and creates your path and our only obligation really is to follow it and not go against it mm-hmm. that's beautiful and I think one thing that um, Making It an Opera is all about is bucking the story of what Making It means. And um, I think you just explained to a T what, what it actually means to make a life that you love and to begin making something that matters. I thought it was so interesting. You said you read the plaque. You saw the story about Mary Cardwell Dawson and mm-hmm. you started asking around in the neighborhood because you're not from Pittsburgh originally right um and so you started asking around and what happened then so I I read the plaque and I asked every single person I knew about Mary Godwell Dawson and the National Negro Opera Company and that house no one knew about it Mm -hmm. except for my friend Miss White who ended up buying the house with me and she had stories of the house and Mary Godwell Dawson 
But other than her, no one knew. Um, I went to Carnegie Library. There was nothing about Mary Codwell Dawson. I looked it up on Google, which was pretty new at the time. You know, there's no Facebook. And there <laughs> I remember was, those days. I know, right? And there was no <laughs> results. And I'm like, how does this person have a plaque yet no one knows about them? And that was very interesting to me, mainly because my father is one of the inventors of the steel pan. And mm. we came to America for him to grow his steel pan business and making musical instruments. Mm. And in the Caribbean, in Guyana, where we're from, everyone knows my dad. Every single person knows him. However, in Pittsburgh, no one did. And it was mm. the same thing. I'm like, how can someone, you know, it's like kind of like Ricky Martin before he was on the Grammys in the 90s. Like this is my mm. era where everyone in the world knew Ricky Martin. But when he performed at the Grammys, La Vida Loca, people were like, who is that guy? You know, and yeah. he's selling out concerts around the world. So I felt like Mary Codwell Dawson was very similar. She was this huge, huge inspiration. She was a person that broke every barrier so that Black people can be on the stage for opera. She's the one that fought the unions, you know, fought the opera, fought the Pittsburgh opera, but she's unknown. That blew my mind. Mm-hmm. And I love her story too. I just wanted to highlight this for a minute because, you know, she, her story as a singer is ex- like, if she were alive today, I'd be like, hey, Mary Carnival Dawson, can you please come and speak on making yes. an opera? Like she, she tried this traditional path. She got, she got this amazing training and she did all the work yes. and then she went to the auditions or she wouldn't even get the auditions and people didn't give her the time of day because she didn't have the right quote unquote pedigree and all that meant was skin color. And um, we, I just, I can imagine that feeling of just, I think so many of us have had that where we've like, not in the facing racism part, but the part about, I'm so disappointed because there's something about this that I can't do anything about and I'm just not going to make it. I'm not going to make it at this art form that I love. And that heartbreak. And then to come home and just start something. Yeah, she felt she could do something about it. Yeah. You know? And uh, I think what depresses me about her story, and going back to your original question about the plaque, I was extremely fortunate to meet Mary Conwell Dawson on that plaque when I did. Mm. Because I was also starting my accounting firm and she was an inspiration for me. I always said, if Mary Codwell Dawson can start her company in the 1940s, I can start an accounting firm. And she felt that I can do something about it. But what's depressing to me is she did something about it for every single person that will come after her, but not Mm. for her. And that Mm. is like the ultimate sacrifice of the world where you know you know, you're about to be a mom. I, I am a mom. You give this huge sacrifice. I am a mom. Yeah, okay, yeah, you're a mom. Okay. So <laughs> you you give this huge sacrifice for your children where you know you're gonna benefit from this, but I'm suffering right now, you know. And oh, yeah. yeah, and that's Mary Claudel Dawson. She knew that she's not gonna benefit from from what she's doing. She's not gonna get that audition, she's not gonna be that main star, 
but everyone else coming after her will have a chance. And I think that is just so remarkable. Mm, absolutely. I was reading this beautiful article that um, a scholar wrote for Seattle Opera about the history of Black opera in America. And I thought it was so interesting how they wrote that the history of Black opera in America is only just being uncovered, yeah. only really just being studied. You're, you are actually, what you are doing is helping to lift it up. And we're in a time when people are wanting to discover it again. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I've heard an- anecdotes about like friends in the South who grew up seeing opera in their churches yeah. And just how all of that was just not acknowledged, not recognized, not celebrated, not celebrated at all. And that there was just this wider understanding that opera is a is an art form for what people from Europe, I guess. Yeah. Um, and how the work that Mary Cardwell Dawson did as part of this movement of black producers is what made Marian Anderson possible. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. It is. And it, <laughs> you know, I remember when Denise Grace called me um, in December 2021, I think, I can't recall. And she had just learned of Mary Cardwell Dawson and the National Negro Opera Company. Oh my God. And I I'm chills. like, I have chills. I said, how? You know, I, I, I went to the Pittsburgh Opera's fundraiser. And, uh, uh, you know, a guy came up to me and he loves opera. He's been in opera his whole life. He said, I'm embarrassed to say I've never heard of Mary Caldwell Dawson. And I was like, yeah, that is really embarrassing. (laughs) You know, it's, I'm like, it's 2022 and people are now discovering this. And, And can you imagine, you know, the opera house itself sat empty since 1976, like before I even came to America. Mm. and I don't know about this for all of these years so it is still right this second being discovered and uncovered and learned about Mm. and it kind of comes back to this this purpose of the season which is healing and recalibration so healing from this idea of what making it should be and then recalibrating and figuring out what your own worth is and what who you are as an artist and what you have to say and I came in contact with the National Opera House story through your social media around the time I launched Making It an Opera, so maybe last summer. Mm-hmm. And um, I just remember thinking, there's something that's healing about this for the whole opera industry. Like, you are helping to lift up this history, but also reawaken it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm thinking about you at 22. <laughs> I don't know if you were 22. I imagine you being 22 because... You graduated from university. <laughs> yes, I'm 24. I'm 24. Yeah. Yeah. You're 24. You're the co-owner of this mansion that's falling apart. Yeah. <laughs> and you have this dream of what it can be. And I'm curious, first, how did that vision begin to come into being? Did you just have it from the beginning after talking to some people? Or did it just, did it start to form as the community around National Opera House grew. Yeah, when I learned about Mary Caldwell Dawson and, and the National Negro Opera Company, mm-hmm. the first thing that Miss White and I discovered is when Miss Dawson had her massive heart attack, her dream died on that day, but it was not finished. 
And we decided all we're going to do is finish her dream. Mm. We are not going to do anything new. I tell people what the house was is what it will be. Mm. We didn't, there was a tea room in the house. We had the original tea room menu. We're like, this is the menu. <laughs> I love like, it. We were not trying. Uh, Mary Claude Wilson's husband built an amphitheater outside so that she can do performances because she couldn't rent space at the time. We're like, we're going to rebuild the amphitheater. There is not one thing that happened that Mary Claude Dawson outlined that we felt we were going to change. Mm. So once we discovered her, her goal, on her plan. And her goal was simply to have people who deserve it. They're talented, just not anyone, but talented people have a fair chance to be in front of an audience. Mm. And I said, let's just finish this, this bridge. Mm. Let's just finish this bridge that has access to a main stage. And that, that was our business plan from day one. It has never changed. Mm. It has never changed because all we're doing is finishing that bridge to a main stage that Miss Dawson started. Mm. And it wasn't just her. It was Woogie Harris who owned the house. You know, Woogie Harris was the black bank in Pittsburgh. He funded businesses. He gave people a place to stay. He wanted people to have a life to, in order for them to have a life. So when Roberto Clemente came to Pittsburgh and didn't have a place to stay, he was like, okay, in order for you to play baseball and be the great baseball player you are, you need a place to, to sleep. Mm -hmm. it, it was that simple. Like, how could you be great if you have housing insecurity? Mm -hmm. So he provided a place for him to stay. How simple is that? Mm -hmm. So we were just providing everything that was already there in order for people to come into who they need to be. I mean, that's, you know, I think people think making it is easy. Mm -hmm. Making it is not easy and it shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. Making it is very, very, very difficult. I, I used to say this when I had my accounting firm. I worked in startup. And startup companies would say, Janae, this should be easier. I said, no. <laughs> no it mm. This is exactly how it is. Uh, you know, the path to success is a path that's not for everyone, but the people who make it are the ones who are supposed to. Mm. Mary Caldwell Dawson just wanted that arduous journey to be fair, not less arduous. Mm. Mm. I also wanted to highlight what you were just saying about the people that Woogie Harris invited in and the reason it was called Mystery Manor because you never knew who was going to yeah. be there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, <laughs> while I was researching, I read this account of you talking to Lena Horn and Ahmad Jamal, two of the famous people who stayed there. And you were this connecting thread by connecting to them to what the house was, mm -hmm. and um, including their National Negro Opera Company's pianist, Peggy Pierce Freeman. Mm -hmm. I was wondering, you know, what were those what were those conversations like? They were very supportive. Mm -hmm. You know, the thing that struck me is they were very supportive. They wanted to see this happen, but they didn't have the means to make it happen. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just inspiring to say, you know, I got a lot of attagirl today. You keep going. <laughs> and, and that's important. Mm -hmm. But it struck me that these artists, they, you know, they couldn't write me a check for $3 million, mm -mm. you know, and I'm like, that shouldn't be you. You're a great, mm. you know, and it's like, 
if you were someone else and looked like someone else, you'd be like, here's $3 million. And so you can see the effects of the lives of people who were very talented, but didn't have the means financially or power to say, we can financially support you, mm. you know, and, and it was encouraging too to say what's also needed, which is what we're doing at the opera house is to build wealth for artists. Mm. Artists are very valuable. Artists is what made us all survive COVID. You know, mm-hmm. artists is what keeps our, our mental stability, you know, is what keeps me looking normal. <laughs> you know, like I appear normal because I'm around artists. And that value should have a monetary equation, not just social equity, mm-hmm. you know, attached to it. And with Miss Freeman, oh my gosh, Miss Freeman haunts my mind, mm-hmm. you know. Towards the end, before she passed away, she literally called me every other day saying, you need to finish this before I'm dead, oh. you know, and it got to the point I remember saying to her, when are you dying? Like, <laughs> I can't live under this pressure, oh. you know, and it was just like, I mean, every other day, Janine, what are you doing? What's going on? Who are you talking to? Mm-hmm. And I literally was talking to every person, trying to educate them about this project, applying for every grant under the sun, telling the story. And it didn't matter because Ms. Freeman was like, you need to be doing more. You need to finish. I need to see this before I die. She was like the critic voice in your head, you know, when you've got this big idea. (laughs) She was like that embodied. Yes. Yes, she was that in voice and spirit. And <laughs> when she passed away, I just felt like such a failure and a disappointment. But I think the biggest feeling of that is when Miss White passed away and we didn't finish. You know, the sad thing with this project, um, there's a lot of people that started this with me 22 years ago. Mm-hmm. And at the end, the only people left was the architect and our landscape architect. Mm. And the week before the groundbreaking, the landscape architect died from cancer. Oh. And it was heart wrenching because I told the architect, it's just you and I, mm. you know, our historian, John Brewer, passed away every single person that was the core team of this project passed away Mm. and when miss white passed away i just felt like oh my gosh just this is just impossible like it's it's just such a burden but i think what kept me going is just now it's like i'm responsible for making this happen because mary conwell dawson was the first person to fall on the sword to sacrifice her life for equity and all of these other people, Ms. Freeman, you know, Mr. Brewer fighting for this justice that's just not coming. And my thing is a symbol of what that needs to look like. Other than deciding to keep going, because I think that is that has probably been the biggest decision you've had to make every day. But what has like over this 22 year journey, you have created a nonprofit, you've created an entire community you have been advocating nonstop for support and funding. And really kind of, from what I understand, the faucet was kind of like released or oils finally when you got on this National Register of Endangered Places. And that was just last year. Yeah. So I'm wondering, what do you think were 
the most important decisions you made over those 20 years leading up to that so that things could keep moving forward so that you could keep doing this? That's a great question. I, I think the most important decision in life is to keep going. Hmm. You know, I, during COVID, um, I became very sick, not with COVID. I had a brain infection hmm. and I remember saying, okay, if this is my last month on earth, what's the most important to me? What do I want to do? And I was telling my daughter, you know, I think I'm just going to get rid of this opera house project. I've done my best. And at that time, for some reason, I had a lot of people inboxing me, telling me, you know, you've had 20 years to get this right. You've gotten it wrong. Obviously, you don't know what you're doing. Let someone do it. Like every day I was getting about four or five Mm. messages saying, you're not the one. Let someone else do this. Mm. And my daughter, she really was the spark for this, like, you know, this she was the spark for this leg of the race, mm. because, you know, there's times you're like, this is it, I can't, and you need that spark, and it was harsh, it's like, no, mom, my whole life, you've been working on this, and talking about it, why would you give, and she's 13, oh. she's like, why would you give up now, this is it, and I think, the key thing is to just keep going, success comes to those who finish, Mm. you know and if you quit you'll never be successful so quitting is the enemy stopping is the enemy and keep going is how you make it Mm. and once she said that it was like I was on fire because I'm like okay I'm gonna make a decision to take this till I die Mm. you know I'm like I'm just gonna take it till I die Mm. wherever I can take it and that's it and I think when the list came out and we were the most endangered, people really were like, oh my gosh, we might lose this now. You know, we need to do something. Because I've been saying we're going to lose it for 20 years. So it's like, <laughs> what if And you were like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, and the National Trust says it, you know, and then Forbes magazine picks it up. Then it's like, oh, this is what Janae's been telling us for 20 years. So it was a great spark. But I think the decision is to not give up. And that decision is hard. Mm. I mean, my life was hard at the time. And I was like, I don't need to carry another thing. Mm. But it's deciding to keep going that gives you the strength to actually carry it. Mm. It's crazy. It's, it's one of those things, you know, where it's like the road less traveled. Mm. The thing that gives you the strength is the thing that is the burden before you have the strength. Mm. And I think there's there's something here as well that I keep running to, into again and again with people that I talk to. And it's it can't be about something small or it can't be about just you, for instance. This project has never been about you. It's been about something so much bigger. And I realized myself that trying to make it down this prescripted path in opera. It was about what everyone had always told me I was good at and I was just going to try and do it. And, you know, that would prove my worth and I would be approved of and everything would be good. And then I realized, oh, that's not enough for me. It has to be something more important. It has to be something bigger. I have to live for something more. And then in living for something more, I couldn't go down the prescripted path anymore. It would make no sense. Yeah, That's really something that... I admire about this project is how it's it is about something that is so much bigger well to that point when I so 
I, part of my scholarship to college was community service. Mm -hmm. I'm big in service. And when I started my business, um, I did this project because I wanted to do my own service project. Mm -hmm. I had been volunteering for Boys and Girls Club and Salvation Army, United Way. I was like, I'll just do my own project. And at the time, the in nonprofit, I mean, in for-profit and startup, the term was a BHAG. And a BHAG was a big, hairy, audacious goal. Uh-huh. And in the book, the guy was like, everyone needs a BHAG. And I was like, you know what? At the time, I'm like, I know accounting like that. That's my skill. And this is going to be my big, hairy, audacious goal. Mm. The thing with that is you don't know how big it is. You don't know how hairy. You don't know how audacious. And you don't know how far away your goal is. And so that is what really ends up shaping you and the project in the world is having this BHAG, it was called, um, in the early 2000s. I love that, a BHAG. <laughs> <laughs> I can just see Everyone the monster. I can just see the monster. <laughs> and that actually... right on your back. <laughs> that actually brings me more into your, into your history. So I was curious, so your, your father invented this steel drum is that correct yeah he's one of the original inventors that's what brought us to america that's so wild and uh, so yeah. you grew up around a lot of music i'm assuming yeah did you every day did you grow up around opera or did this house bring you into that world the house introduced me to opera i i liked opera um i like music i like art mm. you know i i like the reason i like math is because it's specific. Mm-hmm. I do not, I'm not a person that's black and white. Like if I ask you a question, I'm looking for a yes or a no. I'm not really looking for a, well, maybe, I don't know. Like that blows my mind. <laughs> and music and art is like math. It's very specific. And I was always in love with artists that had the ability to take their art and become it and then share it with the audience. Mm. And so even though I wasn't an opera singer, because I cannot sing at all, opera always did that, where the opera singer would sing and hit this note, and you would just feel it in your being. And that always, like the genius of that ability, just, I, I just, I'm always in love with that level of genius. Like people who can take, the genius of being an artist and take that energy and embed it into the emotions of the audience Mm. and opera singers. They're one of those people that can do that. So that's how I loved opera is that genius. Like how did you hit that note and like tears start running down my face? Like Mm. two seconds ago, I didn't know tears would be running down my face and gospel music does that for me as well. Uh, the blues, you know, but what I learned from my dad with music and art and singing is every note has the ability to control the audience emotions. And I'm always in love with being able to do that. Like I could do that today. Like if my daughter's not feeling, you know, happy, I can go on my steel pan and play a song and she'll be like skipping through the house because I know the chords to play. I love that. I love that. (laughs) So I always loved that ability with opera singers. You know, they could tell this story and in one bar, 
you're giddy and, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is, and then the next bar, you're like, oh, tragic. <laughs> you know? So you kind of came from this startup world, this world of innovation with your father. Mm-hmm. And now you're involved with this house and that is drawing you into the opera world. What was that? I am sure that was so different, <laughs> like making connections with the opera world and you can be as diplomatic or non-diplomatic as you want. But uh, <laughs> what was that difference like to go from that world and into this world of established opera and talking to people who support it? Um, well, you're making a great, a grand assumption there. I'm not yet in the opera world. <laughs> I, I mean, it's impossible. Mm. You know, um, the Pittsburgh Opera has recently literally adopted me in the National Opera House, you know, but we, we signed an MOU recently, like this year, before the last two years, you know, I had nothing to do with the opera before their, their current executive director, like in 2001, when I tried to contact the Pittsburgh Opera, the amount of times they got back to me was a whole zero. Oh my God. So, I mean... They're like, we didn't know you existed. I bet you didn't. <laughs> so I had no, I have no connect. I mean, today, like to, today, this date is when this is happening. So I, I can't even say I'm there yet. I'm just, I'm like the, um, what do they call the people that live in the caves? And, you know, I'm like Igor or whatever. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not in there. Uh, I'm not in that world. I'm. I'm a, I'm not in that world. That's totally fine. That's wonderful. In fact, <laughs> <laughs> I am not in that world. The people who are supporting me with this project are visionaries, hmm. innovators. Um, you know, RK Mellon was the first foundation to come out and say, Janae, we're going to support you. It took a ton of courage for them to do that for Sam Ryman to just be the first person to publicly say, we're going to fund you. Mm -hmm. Um, Why do you think that took a lot of courage? Because it's like when it's like stopping a fight, Mm. you know, it's wrong. You know, it shouldn't happen, but someone has to jump in and stop that fight. Mm. And most people don't. Mm. And so it takes courage to jump in the middle and stop a fight. And this was like the fight of injustice just happening over and over. Mm. Um, There is no reason why this house being the only black opera company in the first in America to not be funded. Mm. There's no reason. Mm. There's like no reason. So that's the fight. The fight is you have this historic landmark. It has a plaque. It's the home of the first Black opera company in the country. The person who literally built the path for Black people to get on a stage and it cannot be funded. That, that's the fight. And Sam Ryman, R.K. Mellon, was, they jumped in the middle to stop it. Mm. That takes courage. Absolutely. And so after them, who followed? After they came in, um, it was the Allegheny Foundation here in Pittsburgh. Um, it was the National Trust 
you know, the conversations became easier. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say, oh, people are just calling to write me blank checks, but, you know, I had someone fighting with me and that made all the difference of the, in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, I even recently um, here in Pittsburgh, there are people who were who running foundations who've met with me personally and say, you know, Janae, we support you. And I emailed them and I'm like, thank you for supporting me. This is a feeling I've actually never felt ever with this project. And they weren't supporting. Yes, they're getting me funding, but they're supporting me. Like we are Mm. here for you. Mm. And until right now, like last week when that happened, I never had that. Like my family, they love me to pieces, but they're like, when I bought the house, my mom was like, Janae, why don't you get your own house? move out of our house before you try to restore this old house mm-hmm. you don't have a place to live mm-hmm. you know you can't just live at home forever and even when I was like putting so much work into it my parents and my sisters are they're like you're smart you're an accountant you run a successful accounting firm you don't need to take your hard-earned money and keep dumping it into this house and that was just the theme I couldn't even talk about it because the response would be like get rid of it you don't need that. Mm. You know, it's not even your history. Mm. And then you had the people in the community against it. You, it was just no, no support. But now for the first time, I have people who are like, we support you. Mm. And that just means the world to me. Mm. Like beyond money, because now it's not just on me. But that support really started with my daughter saying, I'm, I'm going to root you on every day, mm. you know, and then people came behind her. That's so beautiful. So in this, like, I would say this 20 year span until your daughter really picked up the torch for you, you started with a core group who died off about 10 years in mostly. Yeah. In that time, the Homewood is what you were just saying that the Homewood neighborhood was against it or were some people for it? There was not one person for it in the community Hmm. because the community is very poor. Mm. When we had our community meetings, they were like, Janae, we need education. We need jobs. We need housing. We need food. It's a food desert. Mm. And you want to put money in opera? Are, are you mm. out of your mind? Mm. You know, it, it, they, it, it was unfathomable. It's like, we don't even have a grocery store here. We are living in a food desert and you're putting $3 million into that old house. They were not for that. Mm-hmm. But as a groundbreaking, they all were for it. <laughs> Everyone was behind it. I'm wondering how the, I that was my next question. I'm wondering how the conversations are shaping now or how the possibilities are developing for the neighborhood now that there is this attention on the neighborhood. They love it. Mm. The neighborhood loves it. They see that by restoring this house, like lifting this sea will lift their boat. Like everyone will be in a rising tide because we're uplifting the community and they see it now. Good. Good. And it's great. It's, it's great. Um, At the groundbreaking, the neighbors were thanking the news and the foundations and, you know, everyone, they're like, thanks for coming to our neighborhood. Like, Wow. They're sitting on their porches saying, thank you so much for coming to see us. 
And I I thought that was just phenomenal. Mm. I think that's such a beautiful illustration of what art can do for people. And I think we lose touch with that because, um, especially with opera, uh, when I talk to people, I feel like there are two camps right now in opera. There are kind of an old camp that sees opera as something that needs to be evangelized. Like we have to get it, we have to get the culture out to the people. And um, and then there's this new camp that I would say I belong to, which is you don't owe opera anything and opera actually needs to serve you. And um, this is such an example of, you know, the, the music is getting out to the people, sure, but how is it serving those people? What is it doing in this community? Well, it's bringing hope. It's getting people out of a survivalist mindset. I just have chills thinking about it. That's a great point. I think that's what Mary Claude Dawson did, though. She set up this opera house in the community, in the neighborhood, where a nine-year-old boy in Montemar can walk by and have hope that I can be somebody and then start taking lessons and become somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, where you have someone like Bobby McFerrin Sr., you know, getting lessons from Mary Caldwell Dawson and then being the first person to sing at the Met. Like, I that kind of when hope. I read that. I was like, no way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that hope is incredible where you can reach out and touch it, you know? And I think that's why the community is behind it now. Yeah, I think hope is the greatest thing. Like that, that having, and that's that's really what keeps you going. Mm-hmm. That little tiny spark of light. Like that's, that is what I learned too from my daughter. You could be in the darkest, darkest place and you don't need a giant beam of light. You literally just need like a little tiny spark. Like the, just the tiniest thing in the absolute darkness. You're like, oh, I, I see light. You know, people think you need this giant light to, to make it. And, and when you're in complete darkness, you just need like this, the smallest light. And that's enough to give you hope to keep going. Mm. And I think that just the fact of having people who value a place enough to come and, and shine their light and be great in that place. I'm thinking now about how interesting it's been to, to move to Atlanta, to be in a place where there is so much Black excellence and there's so much just really inspiring work being done. And I don't know, I was just thinking about the difference between living in a place that where everyone has kind of fled away from, where in order to be great, they needed to leave. Whereas being in a place, me being able to raise my kids in a place where people come to be great yeah. It's a very different feeling. Oh, yeah. I mean, Mary Gondwell Dawson left Pittsburgh. Her and her husband could not be great here. Mm. I think what was disappointing to her when she went to D.C. is at that time, if you're Black and you're an opera singer, you couldn't be great anywhere. Mm. You know, the difference today is there's a place to run to. Mm-hmm. You know, in that time, there wasn't. Unless you left America, mm. which people artists did. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, opera singers did leave America um, as recently as five years ago. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think that's just a great point. Pittsburgh, you know, when we came, I think the beauty with our family, and I say this all the time, is when you are an immigrant to America, 
you could be in Timbuktu city in America. And you're like, yes, you know, <laughs> because you don't know anything. Mm. You know, we came from a country. I, I tell people this when I was little living in Georgetown, Guyana, the president was black. We had a black president. And so having a black male president wasn't strange to me because I grew up with a black president. Mm. Um, and I also grew up in a place where the only reason you weren't somebody is because you were lazy. Mm. Like my parents were like, he's lazy. Like that's why he's sitting under a mango tree. It wasn't because someone was putting barriers in front of you. It was you're lazy. So my thing was just don't be lazy and I could do whatever I want to. And so you come to America and then you come to Pittsburgh and Pittsburghers are like, oh, Pittsburgh, you know, I think last year was the worst place to be successful as a black woman. Then it was like the worst place to be a black male was the last city to open a business if you were black. We're like on all these horrible lists. And people would ask me about it. And I said, it is true. But when you come as an immigrant, you are so new and oblivious you're just basking in the shiny things of being in America. Mm-hmm. So that I think helped me with the opera house because, you know, whenever I was getting a no or, or just not being helped, I'm like, how can I just be better? What do I need to learn? What class do I need to take? Who do I need to talk to? You know, it didn't dawn on me, you know, that these are barriers put into place. I would say, well, I'm not a preservationist. I'm an accountant. Like I'm too ignorant to be successful. Mm. So I just put it on me because I didn't have a master's in preservation or history. So every time I think, what do I need to learn to be successful? Like that was my mindset. Yeah. That was something that I found so interesting. Like you weren't in preservation, you weren't in Mm -mm. opera. Mm -mm. (laughs) And (laughs) I love that because I just, I mean, in the end, then it was just destiny. It was just something you were supposed to do. Yep. I'm not a historian. <laughs> I'm not a developer. I, I don't do real estate. Like I don't hit any bucket. <laughs> and now in May 2022, which is was just a few weeks ago, you broke ground. I know, it's crazy. So you see, you can you can do anything. You just have to keep at it. Yeah. I actually had one of the times I while I was researching you that I just started bawling was reading this quote of yours about about all the people who had passed and talking about Peggy Pierce Freeman we were standing in front of the house and Peggy gripped my wrist she said I need you to finish the house before I die and I'm wondering what it's like for you to look back at this 22-year journey now and you've said several things about you know making it is keeping going and you have that perspective now because you kept going and it happened but I'm just wondering thinking about how this whole journey has been and then watching them break the ground and just knowing that this is happening can you tell me what it's been like the past few weeks um that's a great question I think number one I I take very little time to even think about it the last few weeks have been, you know, the way I always look at life, and I say this to my children, to my daughter, my nieces, 
we cannot celebrate until the end. Mm. Like there's no early, like when I play games or video games with my nieces, they'll start like jumping up. Like you didn't win. <laughs> like the game's not over. Like you, you won that one question. You know what I mean? And so I, I have that kind of mindset. So even though we broke ground and, and people were like, Janae, celebrate the small wins. I'm more of a, when this is finished, I can better reflect and think about it. Cause to me, I'm still running the race. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I'm running the marathon and I'm in the last 10 miles. And someone's like, today, how do you feel about the last 10 miles? And I'm like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm running the marathon. So I'm busy. I really, <laughs> right. <laughs> like I, I haven't even thought about it because breaking ground in me, it's like, I have 10 miles to go. So I'm not thinking about the last 10 miles. I'm not even thinking about the current mile of breaking ground. I'm thinking about the finish line. I'm thinking about the ribbon cutting and and what that needs to look like. So, you know, I guess we need to do this interview again when I'm, when I've cut the ribbon. Oh, I would love that. So what is, what does that next 10 miles look like? What's coming up for the NOH? And can you tell us about it and how can people be part of supporting getting all of the NOH to that finish line? Yeah, so it looks like stabilizing the house, which we're starting this week. And it looks like raising another million to $2 million because costs are going up so quickly. But I think the biggest thing, and I've said this so many times that we need are advocates. You know, I've always said we need to build an army of advocates for this project. For too long, it's been too few people or at times one person. Mm -hmm. And there's just no way to do something with the energy of one. You need the energy and the spirit and the prayers of everyone in the same direction. You know, I had a lady call me on Sunday and she said, for 20 years, I've been praying for you. And I said, thank you. That's why I'm here today. Mm-hmm. And that, that's what we need. We need an army of advocates telling the story of this. Because, you know, if you know me in my world, everyone knows about the Opera House. Like sometimes people would rather me talk about taxes <laughs> than the Opera House. You know? <laughs> They're like, what new tax laws are there today? You know, so that's how bad it is. Oh, man. I know. So it's like, I need other people now advocating because everyone around me, they're like, stop it. And that that's what I think is necessary. It's this type of, you know, these interviews that get out in the world. And, you know, I'm proud now when I Google the Opera House of Mary Condra Dawson and there's like 7 million return because mm-hmm. I remember when there, there was nothing. any I, rem- I remember when we were doing your Wikipedia page they would not put up the page because they couldn't like vet the information oh and we God. were like fighting for a year to get the Wikipedia page up <laughs> I remember this oh my gosh it's like all this little stuff you've had to deal with yeah I mean you're fighting back and forth like a year for Wikipedia to say all right Okay. <laughs> she existed. Sure. Yeah. You know, so it's like, 
you know, John Brewer, our historian, he told me that. He said, no one will think this is important until you get the education and the information out there. Mm. And that took a long time. So that's what we need for this next 10 miles is advocacy. We need advocacy for fairness and equity and, and access for people. Why is it so hard? Even in preservation, what I learned, out of the billion dollars, that goes to preservation in America, less than half of 1% goes to an African-American site. Wow. So, you know, I can't, I don't have a lobbyist to go Mm. to Washington to fight for preservation dollars. Mm. So it's so many layers that people don't think about. Mm -hmm. And preservation is a whole different world. I won't bore you in this conversation, but I remember meeting a guy at a preservation conference. He was like, Today, preservation is a white male, is a wealthy white male game. Why are you here? Oh, I don't know. I'm not a wealthy white male. (laughs) Maybe because that needs to change. You know, like he literally said that to me. And I was like, it is? Like, I didn't even know that. And and when I looked at the people preserving historical landmarks, they were white males. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I've never thought of that either and here I am from a suburb known as the city of homes where all of the antebellum homes are beautifully beautifully restored are they are any of them restored by a black female I mean I don't know why a black female would want to restore a plantation house (laughs) (laughs) you know but yeah I mean it's you're I'm in all of these worlds that are not my world but somehow it is Mm-hmm. And I think that just that's human. That's being human. Being human is wherever you are, there you shall be because you're human. Mm-hmm. You never stop being who you are. No. And that, that's the key to being an artist is we constantly fight to figure out who we are so we can be that. <laughs> you know? Mm. Like, let me fight to discover Janae so I could be her. <laughs> mm. That is so true. So true. Yes. Well, thank you so much for your time, Janae. This has been such a lovely conversation and I'm signed up as one of your advocates. Oh, thank you. I I really appreciate it. And I I appreciate telling the story. Um, My sister is the one who tells me storytelling is important. And I'm like, if it's not numbers, I can't rock with it. Like I'm not a words person. But she is a great writer and and she's been telling me that telling the story and controlling the narrative is important. So thank you for telling the story. And that was Janae Solomon and the National Opera House. You can keep up with the NOH on Instagram at National Opera House Pittsburgh. That's P-G-H at the end. And as she said, the most powerful things you can do to support the NOH is to spread the story and contribute funds. You can make your contributions on their website, nationaloperahouse.org slash donate. As always, you are welcome to share this episode with anyone who will listen. If you happen to be in Pittsburgh... The National Opera House will be participating in a women-owned market on Saturday, July 9th. 
and a beer festival called Barrel and Flow on August 18th, 2022. Keep up with the pod on Instagram at Making It an Opera and support us by telling your friends, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, and pitch in some money by donating on Ko-Fi. You can find the link when you go to www.makingitanopera.com. Links, as always, will be in the show notes. See you next time. Making It an Opera is a production of Sounds Like Cool Studios with editing by me, Gwendolyn Coolman. Mm-hmm.